Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Greetings and peace, love and light. Pray that all are well wherever you find yourself in the universe. This is your brother Barka Blue, and you are tuned into Path and Present Podcast. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. First and foremost, after a hiatus, we are back. And we are back for a new season of Path and Present. Alhamdulillah. I want to say lots of love to everybody out there who reached out and said, we missed the podcast. (laughs) The podcast has missed you too. Uh, We were tending to other projects, tending to other engagements, and all kind of going through our own very strange year um, over these last few months with the lockdown. And um, so... I really appreciate everybody who's been listening, who's been checking in and been getting your messages saying we're looking forward to our to the next episode. So here it is. Alhamdulillah. Uh, Yeah, we've been we've been all right. Um, I had COVID at the very beginning a year ago and now at the very beginning in March um, 2020. And I had it pretty bad. you know, for for about two months, um, I had some pretty severe symptoms, and it was right in the beginning when it was all like, because Seattle actually was the first place that it came to in America before anyone knew, so it was all still like hazmat suits and, <laughs> you know, everybody's heart exploding and all this stuff, so it was pretty intense. Maybe I'll get into that in another episode, but alhamdulillah, we're well and uh, grateful to have... Uh, breath, to have breath, alhamdulillah. Uh, but anyway, um, I don't want to make this too long, be too verbose. Inshallah, we get into updates uh, in the coming episodes. But um, for those that are newly tuning in, welcome to Path and Present. And this is a podcast in which we engage spirituality in the modern world and particularly looking at the Sufi path and Sufi teachers, artists, academics seekers of various stripes and uh, reflect on what it means to walk the path of divine unity in the contemporary moment and it's been a blessed ride and it's especially blessed when I travel and people come up to me at events and say the podcast I love it or it affected me or this or that actually a brother we were doing a zoom event with Iman in Chicago um, it was a beautiful, beautiful organization. And a brother on the Zoom call just kind of shouted out that that podcast really had opened something for him and altered his life journey. And, and I've had that a number of times. And it's always really humbling because when I perform, you know, poetry, music, or give a talk or whatever, or teach, I get feedback. Like, I, 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 <laughs> I can feel... The effect, whether it's positive or not positive or whether people are moved or not, there's like a feedback loop, at least of some sort. But the podcast, there's not much feedback loop, right? I record these conversations and then I kind of forget about them. And I'm not sure how they're sitting or how they're landing or how they're being experienced by people in their life. So um, that said, if you do want to let us know, we'd be very happy and uh, you can rate or leave comments on um, iTunes, or of course you can comment on SoundCloud or however else you listen to this. And uh, you can always hit me up too, uh, either email or at me on social media or whatever. I'm always grateful to hear from you. So um, yeah, that's all I'll say for now. But may Allah bless you all, inshallah. So, this episode is with Dr. Muhammad Rustam, uh, Professor Rustam. Oh, this is not his first time on the podcast. We had him, uh, I guess, over a year ago now, when he was living in the UAE in, in Abu Dhabi. I, I went to NYU Abu Dhabi to do a series of, of programs and talks on Sufism and Rumi. And at that time, he was a fellow at NYU Abu Dhabi doing his research and translation 
on Ayna Kuzat Hamadani, one of the great Persian Sufi um, philosophers. But, but now he's back in Canada. He's a professor at Carleton. Uh, Dr. Muhammad is, is, a, is a friend of mine, a dear brother, really beautiful, beautiful-hearted brother, and at the same time, uh, profound intellect, a true philosopher, a true lover of wisdom. And someone who is one of the world's leading specialists in, in the topic of uh, philosophical Sufism, in particular, and Islamic philosophy more generally. <clears throat> and, um, you know, really, really a, a great scholar. He um, is also someone who, in addition to his book on Mullah Sadra and being an editor on the study Quran, he also compiled the essential William Chittick. And anybody who knows me know knows I have a deep, deep love of William Chittick. And it was actually one of the books of William Chittick that was my door into the path of Layla Allah Muhammad Rasulullah. So eternally indebted. And that's a beautiful collection, the essential William Chittick. That was uh, Dr. Rustam who who compiled those. So and he's a student of, of, of Dr. Chittick. So Alhamdulillah, beautiful brother. So this conversation that we had, uh, we're talking about the upcoming course for Rumi Center uh, for Spirituality and the Arts, which has actually just started. Um, and it's a course entitled Wisdom Crystallized Sufi Metaphysics in 21 Verses. And so this is talking about uh, philosophical Sufism, uh, Sufi metaphysics. And it's a class that Dr. Rustam wrote a poem in English, 21 verses, and um, this poem is basically like the tried and true method of teaching in Islamic civilization. Write a poem, right? And it helps, it aids in memorization and understanding, and then a class would be the commentary upon it. So, um, and this poem covers themes and topics such as oneness of being and consciousness, the union of love, lover, and beloved, time and eternity, illumination, poetry and its relationship to thought, training the mind and soul, cultivating divine remembrance, uh, self-discovery, and then self with the capital S, discovery, discovering the highest self, the true self. And uh, alhamdulillah. So we just started the course and we had the opening session was amazing. Um, and if you would like to join, and after this conversation, you probably will want to join um, because, mashallah, the brother is just, you know, shining so much light. Uh, you can still join. And we recorded the all the, the live sessions. But uh, in any case, um, uh, so if you missed the first one, have no fear. You can still join. But if you do want to join, you should try to join before the next live session, which is this Sunday. And some of you are probably listening to this later, so it won't be relevant. But in any case, if you hear this now, come join us. And if not, join another Rumi Center course. We hope to have Dr. Rustam again soon. And you can find more information about that at rumicenter.love slash wisdom. rumicenter.love slash wisdom. All right, y'all. Keep us in your prayers. Send, you, send us your love and your light. Share this with whoever you think might be interested. And uh, please be on the lookout for more episodes. We got many more in the pipeline. All right, y'all. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Greetings of peace, greetings of peace. Alhamdulillah. Okay, I'm here with my beloved brother and companion, the poet and the scholar, Dr. Muhammad Rustam. Uh, it's good to be with you, my dear beloved brother. For those who are not familiar with your work, you are someone who I admire and I've had great, beautiful conversations with. And um, I know that your area of interest is in philosophical Sufism in particular, and um, the conversation that we're having today is to discuss the upcoming course that you're doing with Rumi Center for Spirituality and the Arts, 
which is entitled Wisdom Crystallized Sufi Metaphysics in 21 Verses. So um, the purpose of this conversation is to discuss that um, and yeah, hear a little bit about the poem and the course. So first of all, welcome beloved. It's really good to see you. And second, I'd love to hear about this poem that you wrote and the intention behind writing it. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much, Habibi, for having me. Um, yeah, it, it's always so good, you know, when we get a chance to talk, to talk even th through all these, this pandemic, you know, we managed to make time and, and to do it, you know, proper Zoom, live stream, and we're learning things. We're learning things every day. So that's good. Um, yeah, so yeah, this, this poem, so it, it has a very interesting kind of how it kind of happened. It was, it was, it was really odd because I'm not really... I'm not really a poet, you know, like in, in, any, in any real sense of the term. I mean, I'm a lover of poetry. I love Arabic poetry. I love Persian poetry. I love, I like, I love English poetry. Um, but, but I've never tried to compose my own poetry. I mean, I've played around once in a while, you know, um, but never anything really serious. Not like what you've done or anything like that. Anything, any, any, anything near that. Um, and uh, so one time I remember that I, I was thinking about you know, I had to write about the concerns of Islamic philosophy and, and kind of communicating what those would be. And also Sufi metaphysics. And I thought to myself, you know, if I'm going to write a piece, writing a prose piece is uh, at this stage relatively an easy thing to do because I tend to, you know, be, I, I'm a writer. So I, to write another expository piece is not going to be difficult. But I thought, what's the benefit of that? You know, you're, you're kind of, um, it has many advantages, but it would make more sense on one level to try to do something that's a little more creative. So I thought to myself, you know, um, classical Sufi metaphysics also was communicated by, through stories, through the art of storytelling. So Ravari is the number one example of that. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not really a storyteller. That's, that's for other people who, who have that, who have that talent. Um, and um, so then I thought, you know, th there are many beautiful poems in Arabic and Persian on Sufi metaphysics. The greatest of them, of course, the Gulshan Iraz by and there's many beautiful Islamic philosophical poems like the Manzuma of uh, Mullah Hadi Sabzavari. And there are many others like this because it was a traditional art to be able to speak about a text through a poem or to even versify a discipline and then to comment on it, uh, sometimes through verse, sometimes through prose. So I began thinking about, okay, I'm going to talk about the Islamic metaphysics and I have to kind of bring together... Uh, the entire perspective and I could try to do that let's say in 20 or 30 verses how would it sound so I started kind of doing it but then you know I didn't push it I didn't force it it kind of just came and it and and I I, I believe I've always believed in poetic inspiration but but after that process I really came to believe in it because number one it's only ever happened one other time after that which was for another poem and, and, and it's never happened. <laughs> That's it. Like, it's like, it's like it finished. It's gone. It's, it's never come back. The muses. Um, and, and it happened very quickly and it happened. Um, and it was, it was a very systematic kind of thing. And it was a very different experience. It wasn't at all like writing a prose text. It was, and then I had a chance to present it uh, originally in its raw form as a poem with just a small commentary and it was received very well. And then, so I was encouraged to continue with a, you know, longer commentary upon it. So I did that. So that's kind of a genesis of the poem. It deals with the nature of God, the fall of the human self, the recovery of the self, the structure of the cosmos, and then the return to God in this life and the next life. And then the commentary basically follows that and it tries to just, you know, drive home the essential points by elaborating on them. So that's kind of the long and the short of, of how it happened. That was, that was seven years ago, I think. No, yeah. I, think, I think it's really beautiful. And I know you wrote, uh, you and Aludamini, our dear brother, wrote the paper Islam in English, which I really yeah. love. And so this is an example of articulating yeah. this tried and true, um, you know, teaching method from our tradition, which is teaching through poetry. Poetry yeah. is easily memorized and there's something about it that it hits the soul, right? Poetry is shir. The poet is the shatter, the one who feels. And so That's right. poetry is that which is felt. Poetic language, it's like if you understand it, but you don't feel it, 
then the poem has failed completely, right? Yes, it's not yes, about yes. just understanding, it's about feeling and, yes. and experience, though, which yes. I think ties in nicely with, with a topic like this. So, and, and I also relate to what you said about the inspiration. It comes when it comes. That's the thing about yeah. artists, you know, like it's a gift. If, if, it, if it makes you arrogant, like, oh, like there's some failing because re- yeah. it'll get taken away. You don't know when exactly. it comes. It comes when it comes. And may we yeah. be receptive to inspiration. You can't force it. You can't force it. Most things in life, you know, as, as you as one gets older, you realize that there's very few things that you can really force, you know, I mean, not, not. I mean, I mean, we think well, we're led to believe, especially by popular culture, that we're in control of our affairs when, when there are so many levels of causes that are at work just for this conversation to happen that, you know, I, I, as I was telling a friend just yesterday, I said, as I get older, I, I'm, I'm becoming more and more of a determinist, you know, because you just start, you just start thinking how much, how much freedom do I really have to, to, you know, for any of these things to happen? So that's just to say that we don't, we have no knowledge about anything. We're, we're completely just at the mercy of the causes above us. And there are many, so, many things. That's real. And that ties in to the, the poem and to Sufi metaphysics. Yeah. So I yeah. wanted to ask this because I think the general um, individual in popular society, if they've heard of Sufism, if they have a vague idea of Sufism, they probably associate it with uh, mystical poetry, ecstatic dance, chanting, right? These various forms um, and aesthetic practices of the Sufis. Um, So what exactly is uh, this metaphysical or philosophical dimension of Sufism? Because Mm -hmm. that's probably not what most people first associate with Sufism. That's right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, um, it's interesting because like, like if you were to ask a, a, a historian, okay, so what is philosophical Sufism? They, they can give you like, you know, like a particular time in history about when Sufis started, you know, writing more philosophically, right? Comes from usually the school, the, the influence of the school of Ibn Arabi, so 13th century. And before that, for sure, in Enel Khuzad, people like this, you know, 11th century. That's a, a, a historical level. But if you look at a Sufi discourse from the very beginning, of early, especially the sayings of many of the early Sufis, they are, they are clearly very philosophical in their nature. Right? They don't deal with necessarily the same metaphysical language that comes later, largely because of the influence of Ibn Sina. Right? So you don't see Dhunun al-Misri talking about the Wajib al-Wujud, for example. That's, that's not the way it works. Right? He didn't have that kind of vocabulary at, at his disposal. But if you, his sayings are exceptionally philosophical in nature. They get right to the heart of the matter. They put practice before everything else. And they put a discernment and a fundamental understanding of the nature of things right at the forefront. Nifari, for example, the greatest of the uh, earliest uh, Sufi authors when it comes to these, you know, really mysterious philosophical writings. He has a whole series of, you know, uh, conversations that he communicates uh, um, to us that take place between him and God in his mawaqif, right? God stops him at a station and he whispers words to him that sound so mysterious, but if you get into them, they have a deep, they have a, a significant degree of philosophical content. Rumi, for example, we normally don't consider him a philosopher and it would be wrong to call him a philosopher if by philosopher we meant, you know, someone in the tradition of Ibn Sina or something like this, but that there are so many dimensions of Rumi's writings that are deeply philosophical. I mean, they, they really, again, they, they force you to think, takes you to, to the question of the structure of the universe, your place in it, it deals with philosophical issues. Professor uh, Avani, Gulam Reza Avani wrote, has written a famous book now. Um, it's called Rumi's, uh, I, should, I should know the title. Ah, um, it's called, I think, Rumi, a philosophical study. Do you have it there? Yep, in your room? I have it right here. Philosophical yeah. study. You got it. Yeah, that's the one. It's a, an incredible book. I mean, and, and you know, he's, the, he's one of the best people to write such a book like this because Professor Avani has, you know, this is a lifetime, 60, 70 years of serious immersion in the Masnavi. And then also, um, uh, you know, he's one of the most famous Islamic philosophers alive today, you know. And then he writes this book and it's, 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 he just takes you through uh, you know, the, the language of Rumi, his worldview, 
his understanding of existence, the intellect, and he takes you to really the, the, the depths of his writing. And, and it's deeply philosophical. Mm -hmm. So on one level, Sufi writings by their nature tend to be philosophical, right? When we speak about Sufi, uh, Sufi metaphysics though as a discipline, that's a particular kind of language that they're using. And that's largely the language of Islamic philosophy. So there you'll get terminology like, you know, wujud becomes a very important uh, thing. I mean, the word wujud is important in someone like Ibn Arabi, but he doesn't make a big deal out of it as the philosophers did in the same way. Um, in fact, he always takes you to the more mythic understanding of wujud. It's, it means existence, but it also means finding. And normally when you're reading a text from Bayan Ibn Arabi, you always have to have that understanding that he could mean finding here. He could mean existence here and he can mean both at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. And he never read any philosophy. Ibn Arabi famously never, he never read a, a page of Ibn Sina. He, he doesn't mention Ibn Sina once in his writings. One account uh, tells us that he read uh, a certain uh, text by Farabi, picked it up and threw it through it and said, he said, this Kafir couldn't even call him Allah. You know, he just throws it like that. So that's Ibn Arabi. He's his own boss. But, you know, he's, he's the greatest Sufi metaphysician, right, in, in the tradition. So there's something, there's something about Sufi metaphysics that has a philosophical dimension, but it's not necessarily beholden to the discipline of Islamic philosophy. And then you have other writers like Anil Khuzat and uh, particularly Ibn Arabi's stepson, Qunawi, who's, who's a trained philosopher who debates with Nasiruddin Tusi, has an exchange with him. He has, he writes a commentary on, uh, um, on uh, um, Razi's comments on the Isharat of Ibn Sina. He has, uh, reads Suhrawardi's, you know, Hikmat al-Ashraq, a major philosophical work in his own handwriting. He studies with Ibn Arabi. He's a stepson. He has ijazas to transmit all of Ibn Arabi's books. And his, his, his writings are deeply philosophical in nature. But they're, they, they place the spiritual life and interiority first. So if we were to kind of like define Sufi metaphysics, if we can kind of do that, the best way to, um, I think, you know, maybe at least one good way to think about it would be that it gives, it tries to put everything in its proper place. So the, the focus on intellectual discernment is very high, right? But that intellectual discernment, uh, by virtue of what it is, the nature of intellectual discernment, necessarily leads to attendant practice. Sufi metaphysics deals with the discernment of things. So there's a doctrinal dimension, but there's also a very deep practical, you know, application, right? Which is in the, in the practice of Sufism, the invocation of the names of God, the prayer, all of, all of the things that we recognize, you know, Sufi practice to be. So it's a kind of wedding of the two. And then when it comes out in words, it can come out in these deeply, philosophical words in the forms of poems or in the form of prose? I think this is, you're getting at something really interesting is that many of these great philosophers, especially in the later period, right? They are often mystics. I mean, oh yeah. Mystics are philosophers mm. in a certain sense. Like what do you, how do you, you know, where do you put someone like Ghazali? Is he a philosopher? Mm. Is he a legal yeah. theorist? Yeah, mystic is it right? These terms kind of break down because all oh, yeah, of them, yeah, they're meaningless on one level. <laughs> but I think, in a certain sense, and I'd love to hear your reflection on this. At the essence of, you know, what the Sufis kind of hold is this emphasis on the on experiential knowledge. Yeah. That That's right. Just through the rational reflection that you get there, but it's actually through a type of self purification a purification okay. of the heart and then a divine opening that comes through that right yeah you have to put in the practical knowledge into practice and then these yeah. insights will happen i don't yeah. know if you think about that and does that differ you know would you and i know it's it gets nuanced because a lot of the islamic philosophers that oh yeah consider sufis they were also very interested in self-purification so oh, i don't totally, know if you, yeah yeah, yeah, like beginning with Ibn Sina, right? I mean, Ibn Sina, whenever he had an intellectual problem, he'd go to the masjid and pray. He mentioned that in his, in his autobiography. We have actually, um, uh, uh, which have been transmitted and have passed down, we have prayers of Ibn Sina, Ibn Sina's own orad too, his own invocations, his, his, and his own duas. He's a deeply religious man, you know? Um, these, these intellectual historians kind of, it's, it's really weird, the kind of Ibn Sina that, that, that they're reading. Um, 
And um, I'm not sure how that can, <laughs> he's a man who, who is so obviously immersed in the, the traditional worldview of Tawheed. His whole uh, understanding of the nature of reality is, is based on that, that it really comes from a fundamental discernment on a spiritual level, not on a, just a, you know, rational, he didn't just figure this out. He's not an armchair philosopher, right? None of these authors were even Fakhuddin Arazi for as, as rationalistic as he can get. There's such a deep piety and light and illumination in his writings that, that he, I mean, we, because we tend to think of philosophers, you know, um, this happens with most of our terminology in English. We tend, when we look at, when we say philosopher and we look at, in the, let's say an Islamic philosopher, we often have in mind someone like Kant or we have like a rationalist. We have, we have a contemporary philosopher maybe in our mind. We don't think of someone like Plotinus right away. Right or Plato, most of us don't know Plato or Plotinus. So, okay, um, uh, if if a philosopher means somebody who doesn't eat a lot of food, right, uh, abstains from uh, excessive bodily pleasures, uh, uh, thinks all day, right, about intellectual topics, studies math <clears throat> or geometry, and after a full day of this kind of uh, investigation, uh, goes home and treats. Uh, you know, sick people lined up at his door um, and, uh, and until dawn for free. This, the, 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 the people who, you know, the doctors won't even treat. If, if that's what a philosopher means, which is what Plotinus was, then I think most of these Islamic philosophers fit that bill perfectly because they were all physicians. They all treated, you know, people. They were all very, uh, they lived austere lives. You know, even Ibn Sina, even though he also uh, um, uh, indulged and enjoyed life, you know, and he mentions in his own autobiography that he wasn't shy to follow the sunnah on every level. Um, that doesn't stop them from, you know, pursuing a rigorous life of practice, deep practice. So I think that what connects Sufis and philosophers is the practical dimension. That's often forgotten that the, if we were to find a real point of distinction between them, it would probably be that the philosophers, uh, insofar as their discipline is concerned, they don't make as much reference to grounding their understanding of reality in the Quran, in the language of the Quran. Whereas the Sufi metaphysicians and the Sufis put the language of the Quran first and foremost into, especially Ibn Arabi, more than anybody else. Uh, at the expense often of philosophical, you know, categorizations. He'll be like, he'll be writing something and he'll say, look, I know this section could, should, should logically like come after what I, I just wrote, you know, not before it, but this is Kash, this is, I can't control this. I'm just under inspiration, right? Um, so that, that's, this, I mean, it has more to do with like the disciplines. And if you look at some other authors like Mullah Sadra, who's working within the discipline of philosophy, who's a Sufi of the, a bona fide Sufi who walked seven times to, to make Hajj, seven times by foot from Isfahan to Makkah, seven times and died on, on, on route the seventh time in Basra. That's how the man died. He died walking <laughs> by foot, right? And of course, walking. Um, but that is to say, he didn't take caravans or anything. He did the whole thing, you know, and, um, and praying the entire way. So what he does is he brings together in his writings, uh, uh, in the form of Quranic commentaries, Sufi commentaries, and a kind of philosophical understanding of the Quran, all of these disciplines together. So you have all of these uh, vast permutations, but I, 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 think, I think the main point should be uh, of distinction is going to come ultimately down to their language, to their language. So do the philosophers have the dhok? Uh, for sure, someone like Suhrawardi, that's all, that's pure dhok, his writings. And he says at the end of the Hikmat of the Shrak, he's like, you know, don't nobody should study this book if they haven't fasted for 40 days from meat and abstain. You know, he's got all these requirements, right? He's like, don't touch my book if you can. <laughs> That's why I haven't read the Hikmat of the Shrak properly yet, because I'm like, I, I, the, the requirements are too, you know. Um, but uh, I, mean, I mean, he he doesn't, his, 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 in that book, his language isn't, he doesn't speak about Dhok that much. He does distinguish between um, something called Al-Hikmatul Ba'thiyya or rational investigation and Al-Hikmatul Dhawqiyya or wisdom that you taste, right? But his point of emphasis as a philosopher will be more on the rational investigation part. Not at the expense of the Dhawq, but just because that discipline requires that kind of exposition. And then someone like Ibn Arabi will come in and he'll be like, this is all Dhawq, same with Imam al-Ghazali. 
and then you have authors who will kind of join between the two of them. And Qunu is a very good example of somebody who does both. MashaAllah. So if we were to speak a little bit about the worldview and the vantage point and the purpose of all of this. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if a good point of departure um, would be man arafa nafsahu faqad arafa rabbuhu. Whoever knows themselves knows their creator, their sustainer, their Lord. But what exactly is the enterprise of Sufism? And then why are the metaphysicians um, writing? Writing about these nuances, right? And we could even take it back to the, right? The Halaj and Junaid conversations. There was was that school that says, we don't talk about these things because they can only be experienced. Yeah. Those that those that say no, these need to be explored, these need to be conveyed. Yeah, yeah, precisely, right. Exactly. And and this is a tension you find in Sufi writings, right? And Rumi again is, is such a good uh, um such a good example of, of that tension in his own writings because what does he say? Mudati right? Be silent for a little while, right? And then you know, hushtar, be aware. But um what does he do? Sixty thousand verses of poetry, right? After his his pen name in the Diwan is uh, sometimes it's khamush, he signs off as, you know, silent, right? Mm-hmm. So th- there is, th- that tension will always exist because this is um, the fundamental orientation in the spiritual life. Uh, you know, uh, it, it entails a person deeply engaged personally with God directly, right? And it, it, it's, it's a very quiet and a kind of silent enterprise, uh, even just the act of, meditating and praying right that, that happens in a quiet setting it doesn't happen in a noisy setting so often especially when one comes out of a state like that then it's very natural to say look you know these these things cannot be spoken about in that way because they're not they're not discursive realities right they're not discursive even even Sina un- understood that right he made it very clear that there's 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 a kind of knowledge that's not discursive knowledge um and that's what Al-Ghazali says too in Dehya, right? He's always pointing out the fact that, you know, there's this other kind of knowledge and he doesn't really fully, you know, unlock it for you in Dehya. He, he alludes to it. Um, but, you know, Ghazali comes along and says, he, he goes, he goes, you want to talk about this? Here, I'll, I'll give it to you. And he gives it, you know, raw 2,000 pages of just, whoa! And, and, it's, and you think to yourself, he really didn't hold anything back. He just went for it. Like every paradox you could think of, every controversial statement, he just gives it to you. And it's in Persian, so it even sounds, it's more fun, you know, it's more fun. He's playing with all kinds of conventions. Um, Ibn Arabi comes along and he says, okay, you know, we can't talk about these things, but here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you uh, the, the, the single greatest encyclopedia of Islamic learning ever to have been written by one human being. And I'd even go so far as to say the single greatest encyclopedia of human learning to have been written by one human being. It's incredible what, what, what he does in, in the Futuhat in particular. It's unbelievable. And he'd be the first person to tell you that these things cannot be spoken about and uttered and explained, yet he goes to great lengths. And I mean, when you're reading something from the Futuhat, it'll be something that you think is, you know, relatively trivial, you know, in the grand scheme of things. It might be a, a, a simple point about putting your hands down in the prayer. And then you'll see him go on. He'll be like, oh, my God, I never realized that in the prayer, the reason there are two different positions, according to Ibn Arabi, is because one of them, when you fold your arms, that's when you're in a state of humility. And, and in that hal you're in, you're humble, you stand like this before God. But then sometimes God reveals himself to you in a state of like, like a commander and like as a king. And then you have to stand with your arms down straight. And you think to yourself, wow, now where did that come from? That's pure dhok, right? He didn't like, it's, it's not, that's not artistry or, you know, that's pure dhok. So, the, the, the element of silence is, is, is essential in this kind of discourse. But we're human beings, number one. We're people who require explanations, right? The reason there are philosophers is because people have philosophical minds. Not all of them, but some of them, right? So the, the, the causes are there and the effects are the naturally going to be there too and vice versa. Now, some people can say, well, why, not, why didn't the earliest Sufis speak like this? Right, like they're like I said that they're philosophical, but they didn't have that kind of. Well, um, the reason that happened is because as the tradition develops, right, uh, you have more elaborate explications 
of realities that these authors already knew. Uh, there's nothing that Dhunun doesn't know in theory that 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 is somehow you know new to Ibn Arabi, right? What Ibn Arabi is doing largely, and he mentions this himself in the Futuhat, is he's drawing out all the natural conclusions of the findings you find in the early Sufi writings, and he actually goes through great lengths to show number one that he knows the entire early Sufi tradition. He cites all of them, follows the Qushayri's Risala, and then like just takes it to its natural. And, and so they say, you know, everything that these early Sufis knew, they knew it experientially and the, and, the, and the need wasn't there to kind of systematically explain these things to people, right? Philosophical discourse hadn't entered into the Islamic uh, tradition in that way just yet. The legal schools were not even develop, developed when some of these early Sufi writers were writing. Usul of fiqh wasn't there as a discipline in its fully fledged out form like this. Neither were the Hadith sciences. So all of it was very raw, right? And then as time develops, right, what do you have? You have a natural tendency to require systematization and a natural need on the behalf of so many different kinds of learners to like take in these new sciences. I remember one time Professor Nasser gave the, the, the best possible example that I could ever think of. And when he's explaining how all the Islamic sciences later kind of merged together, especially from the 13th century onwards, and he says, when you want to weave a carpet, this is the analogy. So when you want to weave a carpet, you first have to um, spin the individual uh, uh, pieces of yarn. So you, get, you have all your you know, yellow yarn, all your blue yarn. You, you spin them all individually first. And then you start to bring them together in order to create a tapestry. So the tapestry can only be created after all the individual pieces of yarn are spun first. So he said the establishment of the early disciplines in Islam are like the are like the individual pieces of yarn just spinning on their own philosophy here logic here kalam here like this and then later you have this tapestry that's that's put together because of the needs of the time people need rugs and then you have this so so the the silence that aspect will always be there and it, it's it's the necessary end of of all you know serious spiritual practice but the doctrinal dimension is a natural calling for many people, not for everybody. Not everybody will be interested in Sufi metaphysics in its, in its fully, you know, fleshed out form. Sometimes they just want, you know, just, just to get just a, a small taste of, of what it sounds like and that'll be enough. Others think that's a great statement by Ibn Arabi. What does it mean? And so it's for them, especially that, that this kind of a, exposition can 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 provide answers to deep problems deep problems. Wow, this is really beautiful and i think like you say that that and you know and this could take us far afield but you know i know um you know professor chittick who you you know have worked with and compiled his his writings essential writings I, um at least it was my it's my assumption that you know he's when he he writes on rumi sufi path of love when he writes on ibn adabi sufi path of knowledge and at least it drew my, drew my attention to the, the Indian tradition, right? Where you have Bhakti, you have Jana, you yeah. have uh, Karma, you have the various paths. You have the path yeah. of love, the path yeah. of knowledge, the path of service. And this is this understanding that there, there people are given various um, inclinations, right? Mm. And of course, uh, you know, in the Islamic tradition, Sufi tradition, it's not as divergent, always articulated, but you have those streams within it. Yeah. Yeah. Different. Because there are different kinds of people, right? Like Rumi and Ibn Arabi in terms of their forms of exposition. Number one, although Ibn Arabi was, was one of the greatest poets of the Arabic language, he's known more for his prose, right? And Rumi is obviously known for his poetry. When you read them, they, they, the, the message is, is it's, it's relatively the same on one level, but the, the, the means of delivery and even the form, the expositions are very different. Rumi gets into you know, very simple stories that they seem very simple, but they're not actually simple at all. But you know what I mean. Uh, but, but, but they're things that, you know, a taxi driver, a professor, uh, the, the guy working at a meat shop and a school child will, will all have memorized. Mm -hmm. And they'll all have something to say about it. That's the really interesting thing. I remember one time I had this cab, cab driver, this was in Toronto, and we got to talking and he started just, just going on all these verses from the Masnavi. And then he like, he, he was giving me, he was like, 
this is an environmental verse. And it was, I forgot the verse, but it said, um, uh, he said that the, uh, I, I, the idea of the poem was that, you know, God's, you know, God's earth, you know, this round earth, that the person who like um, blows on it goes like that, Rishash, his, his, his mustache will be light on fire. Like, don't mess with the earth. And this is like, and I'm like thinking to myself, I'm having like this amazing conversation with the, with the capture. But, but he, he's, I was just like totally learning from this guy. And I'm like, he probably doesn't know where it is in the mustache. I'm sure he didn't know, like, but he knew it. And um, so, you know, each of these authors, uh, their, their mushrub might be different. The place they drink from, right? It might be, it might be like totally divergent. And sometimes you'll have Sufi authors who will like, like criticize other Sufi authors' perspectives. As happened with Ibn Arabi in India, you had groups that loved him and you had groups that hated him. Um, and, and the ones that didn't like uh, his perspective, often it wasn't that they didn't agree with what he was saying. It, it was that they just had a different way of kind of like looking at the same reality. So you have so many you know, possibilities. Uh, there's a famous story between Qunawi and Rumi. I'm sure you know it, but, but for the benefit of, you know, the friends here uh, where a student comes to Rumi and Qunawi is sitting with him and asks him the question, you know, a, a specific question. Rumi obviously just gives him a verse. Student's very happy. He walks away. And Qunawi looks at him. He goes, and, you know, Qunawi is known for his expositions and lengthy, detailed <clears throat> discussions. And he says to Rumi, he goes, I don't understand how you can make such complex ideas sound so easy. Mm-hmm. And then Rumi said, well, I don't know how you can make such easy ideas sound so complex, <laughs> right? And there it is right there. Those are the two different. And that's because we're all just so different as human beings, our intellectual makeup, our cultural conditioning, our language, our experience of the world. And these Sufi metaphysicians write for everybody. Sometimes Sufi metaphysics can be extremely heady stuff. And at other times it can, you know, it's, 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 it's just, you know, Mahmoud poems, the, those are like the best example of simple sounding, you know, uh, Masnavi style Persian poetry, but extremely profound in meaning. MashaAllah. So, um, alhamdulillah, I, I know Rumi Center is blessed to have you. Uh, Two week seminar starting uh, this Sunday exploring these ideas more deeply. And it's a great opportunity and I'm personally excited about it. Um, And, you know, for those that will be joining us and then also more generally, um, what are the kind of main themes that the Sufi philosophers or metaphysicians or this philosophical um, Sufism, you know, this discipline what are the main themes or ideas that it um, focuses on or that the Sufis are really obsessed with writing about? Yeah, well, so, so um, the, the first of them uh, uh, would be the question of existence, of wujud, right? Many of the Sufi philosophers, especially if they have this philosophical training, they're, they're concerned with wujud, existence, God, the existence of God. And, um, the, you know, what's interesting is they're not trying to prove that God exists, right? Because none of these people ever doubted that God existed, right? They're doing what is called in Arabic, they're speaking about the divine and how to explain, you know, how, it, how you know, for someone like Ibn Sina, how God is the, essentially like the, the fundamental glue that holds everything together, existence, how this works. So we're going to look at that in the, in the commentary and in the poem. And then also that takes us naturally. So that kind of begins from the top, right? And the, these authors always like to begin from the top and then work down. So how is it that from the one, the many comes about? Because we're in the realm of the many. And the goal is tohid. The goal is to make one. So we're not right now as human beings, um, insofar as we're distant from God, we're not in the, you know, uh, the, the, the realm of oneness. We're here stuck in this world of multiplicity. That's another reason why we need to be able to ask and answer these questions, because some people will only take those steps towards the realm of the one back from multiplicity after they're satisfied intellectually, <laughs> right? Some people are like, I don't care, just take me to it. But others are like, they need to be convinced. I know when I was a young man, I needed to be convinced, not, not about the existence of these things, but I needed something satisfying. You know, I was reading different philosophers. I was reading Kalam, which didn't satisfy me at all. And then, and then I thought, 
I'm like, and uh, something's missing. And then I read Ibn Arabi and I was like, that's it. That's it. That's exactly. He spoke to my mind, but he also, he said, he said, he said, it's not about the mind. It's not, it's, that's just looking with one eye. You need, you need both eyes. You need to also, imagination has to open up and then it opened up a whole new world. So we have to go from, you know, uh, this world of multiplicity back to the world of unity. So therefore the individuals who are involved are us and we are the fundamental subject of, of this of this poem in the commentary, right? Because we're the ones who have to know God. We're the ones who have to figure out our own situation here with the divine help and we have to go back. So it has uh, to do with existence and self-knowledge. That's one of the main topics, therefore. And that takes us to the question of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Consciousness is very important because it's, it's related to the existence of God and it's related to uh, us. You know, many of these authors, they explain God as being like ultimate consciousness, supreme consciousness. And then the, so if God is supreme consciousness, then what are we? We're like, you know, little drops of that ocean of consciousness. And then when we die, it's a return of the drops back into the ocean. And so the return back to God is also, uh, you know, an important theme in these, in the poem, in the commentary. Because that's where we're going. So we talk about the origin and the midway point, And then, of course, the return. And then along the way, the poem also tries to address other issues. For example, you know, uh, how do you uh, avoid ideology and the excessive historicization of mm. these uh, of, of of this tradition? So one thing that I, one feature that I've I tried to include in the published version of the commentary was anytime I mentioned one of the Muslim philosophers or uh, Sufi metaphysicians in the in in the commentary, whether it's Rumi, Ghazali. Suhrawari, uh, Ibn Arabi, whoever, I never give them a death date. Mm-hmm. And I never give them a death date because, because that historicizes them. And that, that's, that's good for scholarship, but it's, it's not meaningful for people like us because like how many Muslims today can tell you that the Battle of Badr happened in the year 622 or 624, excuse me, right? We won't, we, they, they won't, they won't that, that's not the way we think about events, really. We, we experience them uh, in, in sacred time. And uh, modern Western philosophy, we never th- think about Kant as dying. And I think it's 1801. No one says Kant, D, 1801. He's this abstracted universal figure, right? Whereas our guys are always people in history. And once you put them in history, they have nothing to say to you today, which is totally not true. They have everything to say to us today and more. And they're much more meaningful than someone like Kant. I mean, can't put Kant and Ibn Arabi on the, on anywhere near in, on the, in the same discussion. Ibn Arabi is addressing the entire person. So this poem tries to, you know, in its own very simple way, explain the entire problem of the person, of the fallen nature of the self, of how it is that the mind has to be able to work around the maze of modernity, and also the confusing dimensions of just personhood that kind of, you know, get piled up upon one another in this world in the name of ourselves, which are really not ourselves. So discovering the self and then the return back to the true self. I love this. And I think this idea of the self is so important. And consciousness, as you know, there's all this philosophy of mind and, and yeah, yeah. conversations about consciousness and, and everyone's stumped and what, what is it? And it's yeah. so profound, right? Because we, we think, you know, we can look at the universe and we can measure the distance between galaxies, but we can't understand that which knows. So what yeah, do we really know? Exactly. <laughs> we don't and understand the through support. which we know everything we say we know. So exactly. what do we know? Right? Yeah, we know nothing. If we don't know self, like Baba Afzal Kashani says, and I know you're reading, you'll be doing those exercises with the students on the poems. His whole way is it's, it's you have to know yourself. It's all about, the, if you don't have, have self-knowledge, you've, You've missed the whole point, right? You know, who cares if you, if you can know some statistics about some distant galaxies, right? That's very good. And you can also know many other things in this world. But like you said, the, the knowing subject, the, the, the principle of all of the things that we can know, the basis of our knowledge, if we don't have that, what do we really have? And then especially if we take these you know, discussions seriously and how they explain how that self continues on you know, beyond uh, this life, then it becomes very interesting because knowing that self is like essential to, to your own personhood, not just here, but, you know, as you continue on in different stages, 
like the Quran says that tarkabunna tabaqan an tabaq, right? You'll go up stage and say, we're, we're, at the, we're at the lowest possible stage, they tell us. And the higher you go, the more you know. And then eventually there's there, there's a, you know, a great knowing. There's a great knowing too. And yeah, I mean, so much of the, the Sufi authors, it's really about this idea that the thinnest veil of ego is a thing that keeps you blind, right? It's this thin oh, veil yeah. of self, of falsely identifying with the illusory, illusory aspects of yourself, of your identity. Yeah. And I mean, so many, you know, I mean, Imam Ghazali talking about that there's a, of course, we have the door of, the, of our consciousness, which opens out to the senses, but we have a door of our consciousness, or as he puts it, the heart, which opens to the low al-mahfud, the preserved yeah. tablet, right? This, right? And of course, Rumi, right? And you quote this beautiful, one of my favorite Rumi poems, right? He says, I was knocking at the door and I kept knocking and I kept knocking until my knuckles worn thin. Yeah. And finally, when the door opened, I realized I'd been knocking from the inside. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's still reality <laughs> yeah. that there's, there's, there's a door within us that opens to the divine presence that opens to the ultimate reality. And of course the prophet, peace be upon him, the hadith, right? In the divine voice, my servant draws near by the obligatory and continues to draw near by the extra acts of devotion until I love them. And when I love them, I am the seeing with which they see, the hearing with which they hear, the hand with which they grasp, the, the, the tongue with which they speak and the foot with which they walk. So there's really a mystical dimension the deepest aware you know uh, awareness of our own consciousness which is somehow and again this is why it's, it's a mystery and it really can't be spoken of it has to yeah. be experienced but it opens up to that which is boundless right yeah exactly yeah exactly and then you know like even like contemporary philosophers of mind and all kinds of different uh, people who think about you know these uh, the relationship between, let's say, neurology and, you know, our, our physiology and our sense of self, uh, they'll all tell you that, that we don't really actually know what, what the, what the um, consciousness of a human being actually is. We have a very difficult time. It's, it's, this is called the hard problem of consciousness. Like, what is it? And Thomas, ne um, Thomas Nagel, a very famous philosopher, who I think is an atheist. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that he is. He wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos. This was, it probably came out, I think, in probably 2016. And I think, I think the title is Mind and Cosmos. And the subtitle is something like uh, Why uh, Naturalistic or Evolutionary Conception of the, cause, uh, of the Human Consciousness is Almost Certainly False. And he goes on to explain. Yeah, you read the book. And he goes on to explain uh, that, that, you know, for all that we know about what, what a conscious agent actually is, we don't, we don't, we, uh, an evolutionary model or some kind of, you know, like model that tries to physicalize the, that dimension of human knowing to some kind of neurons interacting or some kind of matter coming together because it just doesn't explain. It doesn't have the real explanatory force to account for how complex the consciousness of, of human beings are, let alone other beings, the human being. So, this is beautiful. And I wanted to hear you maybe say a little bit about something. Um, you know, there's a line in the poem and I didn't memorize it yet. Yet, So um, I, I but the, but the general idea was, um, you know, a Muslim name, but secular mind. Yeah. Right? And Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah, I heard him say, you know, recently said, you know, as Muslims, we're, we're so blessed that, you know, we know so much about the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, how he prayed, how he ate, how he slept, how he did all these nuanced things where he was saying, unfortunately, you know, the Christian scholars, they even debate which language Jesus spoke in. Was it Syriac? Right, was it right? And so he was just saying, like, Muslims don't really realize often, like, how lucky we are, how blessed, right, that we have this great body, right? No yeah. one, no one's oh, yeah. life has been as well documented as his. So he said, we know this. He said, but, and he said, and amazingly, Muslims still pray as he prayed and fast as he fasted and do all yeah. these activities. He said, but the difficulty of our age is that very few Muslims see the world the way he saw the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. I don't know if you have any, you know, if you wanted to yeah, um, expand yeah. a little bit on that, that, that line in your poem. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, so yeah, the, the line is, um, and Muslim name with secular mind produce not knowledge of an Islamic kind, right? And uh, so the idea is, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's more or less along the lines of what, what Dr. Omer said there, um, that, you know, the, the, the point that we're trying to bring up in that, in that particular verse was, you know, you find often, you know, many Muslim thinkers, right, who kind of like look at the world and uh, assess different positions in the world, but they do so through lenses that are not really rooted in the tradition, right? And um, now, so at the beginning, it has to be said that when we say not rooted in the tradition, it is not to say that every single view that we should have has to be rooted in the tradition because many of the positions that we have to take today on, on so many issues, they're just not addressed by virtue of the time and place uh, by the tradition and many of the principles are sometimes in need of you know um, uh, adjusting and, and rethinking so there, there's nothing like following some ossified tradition or something like that the islamic tradition is ex exceptionally dynamic in every dimension when it comes to law when it comes to philosophy when it comes to everything so you know that that kind of simplistic way people look at things and they're like oh you're just trying to say we're we got to follow the past no that's that's silly anyone who's anyone who's sat with serious islamic thinkers like Doc Romer and, and so many other people, Sherman Jackson, Professor Nasser, you see how dynamic they are in their thinking and, and the way they're able to address problems. But it, there is this other sense that, you know, because the knowledge that's contemporaneous and, and popular today or being, you know, studied in university courses is, is philosophy X or, you know, view Y, we should just take that, Islamize it, and then, you know, be good Muslims, alhamdulillah, pray five times a day, and then now create our own new discourse, but just appropriating terms from other uh, worldviews without really taking account of what those worldviews are all about, really. A secular worldview, one that's rooted in nothingness, right? That It's very difficult to reconcile that with something like, you know, an Islamic metaphysical uh, principle. So why don't we, just like he said, take take the, the prophet's way of looking at things, right? When he, when... When, when, when rain fell from the sky, he said, this is, this is fresh coming from heaven, right? It's coming straight from heaven. So modern science tells us this is something called precipitation, a totally abstract term that has nothing to do with our real understanding or interaction with, those, with that water as it comes from the sky, right? The prophet didn't call it precipitation, right? It's mercy coming, coming, from, coming straight from heaven to you. It's coming to you. Precipitation is more or less a kind of random thing. It's just falling, right? And so your life is more or less random too. It's you're just, you just happen to be the recipient of this precipitation. But when it's coming straight from heaven directly in that, and, and, and you see it that way and you explain it that way, then you feel the divine hand in everything. You feel it come around. And this is exactly how Muslims have historically looked at the world. They've looked at it through the lens of the, the prophetic sunnah through the lens of the Quran, everything, the whole worldview was rooted in that experience of reality. The prophet says, when you put on uh, one shoe, you should pray to God to give you the strength to put on the other shoe. Mm. Like that's uh, putting on shoes is probably the, the thing we think least about in the day. You do it five times. You wouldn't even, it's not even something that would register as an act. You just put it on you. Right. But look at the attention to detail, the level of conscious awareness you need of the divine presence at the moment you're putting on your shoes, you're slipping one on and you're consciously aware of the divine presence at that moment to put the other shoe on. That means your entire being is rooted in a whole different way of looking at things. So uh, Muslim name with secular mind produce not knowledge of an Islamic kind means if you have uh, an, uh, an Islamic name and you happen to think about you know, the Big Bang theory in the Quran or something like that, that doesn't make you an Islamic thinker at all. That makes you a Muslim thinker, uh, excuse me, that, that makes you a Muslim person who's usually like, a, you know, following some secular scientific ideology or whatever, and who's now been able to appropriate that into Islamic language and discourse, and then, uh, and then somehow tried to rationalize it and square it as, as in line with Tawheed when it's not necessarily the, uh, the case. No, I love it. And I think, you know, if we, if we look at the Hadith Jibreel and, and we talk about the prophetic way, it is, it is Islam, Iman, Ihsan. So, yeah. you know, there's right action, the domain of action, but there's also 
Iman, it's it's right understanding, it's right vantage, right? And then Ihsan is right inner state, right? You know, and so all of those combined are the path, you know. And yeah. then you get your fan, right? And then you get the, Yeah. Yeah, that's the deepening of the yes, exactly. Exactly. So, you have to have the right, you know, the that's why the like one friend of mine recently we were corresponding about something and he said he said something like, Oh, you know, um, this is this is this is a good document here the author's you know heart is in the right place and I, we, we were studying the text together and i said yes but the author's mind is not in the right place <laughs> you know so they have to both come together right you have to it's very good of course you have to have the right heart but but your mind also has to it has to you know be trained in a certain way if it's not then you know you're you can you can end up appropriating all kinds of worldviews that and you don't even know what you're doing half the time you think that you've you know, you've got some original ideas of your own and they're not your, and then there's, there's another whole other thing, which is how many Muslims ever look at the, let's say, let's say some Western secular ideologies that they appropriate because they're so interested in knowledge, of course. All right. How many of them take their own thinkers seriously? I bet you if Western, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, scholars took Islamic thinkers totally seriously and put and had them in the same conversation then many of us, we would take our own guys more seriously. Mm-hmm. That's that's part of the problem. It's an inferiority complex, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we should we have to be able to break out of that and understand, number one, the, the resources that we have, the riches that we have in our tradition, which is a living tradition. It's not, it's not like just some reified thing in the past. Those are not just meaningful, but they're essential for our times. Like people who don't have access to these materials, when they hear about them for example people who come to the Rumi center when they hear these things for the first time they're probably blown away they're like well this is where has this been my whole life how come i never heard about you know i i i heard i heard about ibn arabi for the first time when i was like in the third year of my of, of university third year as an undergrad and i've been studying philosophy so what 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 was happening all those years before that when i discovered him and i'm like i'm like there's a whole world that i just don't know about they're never taught they're never taught in these schools unless if somebody happens to you know take an interest so no, i mean this is powerful and you know people have used terms like epistemicide right that, you, yeah you know, that's, that's right and you know people talk about you know yeah. colonial studies well the reality is that you know as uh you know terrible as it is to have your land stolen and to have your resources stolen you can ultimately get those things back. But if you have your worldview stolen, right. you, can never, you can never recover because you, you can never but speak with somebody else's tongue and see the world but through somebody else's eyes. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and it's the greatest indictment upon the intelligence, especially from Muslims, because we're speaking about them, to do that because they're, they're falling Oh, so they're like, oh, you know, um, the Islamic tradition, there, there's, there's too much taqlid, there's too much imitation happening of authority. When you, when you subscribe to evolution or some kind of worldview, that's all based on taqlid too. Or some, even if you believe in quantum theory, you know, quantum theory is exceptionally complicated and there's all level, there's so many levels of quantum theory, right? If you accept it, even if it's, if it's most basic fundaments, you're doing taqlid or you've read you know, Stephen Hawking's um, A Brief History of Time, and for which you need to do taqlid too, because you can't verify any of that information yourself. So you're gonna, we're all going to follow something, right? That, that's a natural human tendency to follow, right? That, that, that's not, but, but the, to exercise your own um, to, uh, judgment and your own thinking based on what's really good for you as a person and, and what it means to be a person for whom something should be good or should be bad, those are all things that are up for grabs. We have to seek to realize that for ourselves. And the Islamic philosophical and, and mystical traditions that, that, that have been cultivated for all of these years in so many different languages and climes and times and cultures and contexts, these, they, have the, they have some of the deepest answers to those very questions, to those very questions. Yeah. No, so I want to I want to honor your time. I know it's late on the East Coast, and and, and you know we could speak yes, for, for all night about these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. There'll be many other chances. <laughs> but in closing, uh, 
for anyone who's watching that wants to continue these type of discussions and wants to explore these topics, uh, I want to invite everyone to Wisdom Crystallized Sufi Metaphysics in 21 Verses by Muhammad Rustam, March 21st. That's this Sunday is the beginning. It is a two-week course. Um, the topics that will be explored are include oneness of being and consciousness, the union of love, lover, and the beloved, time and eternity, illumination, poetry and its relationship to thought, training the mind and soul, cultivating divine remembrance, self-discovery, and then higher self-discovery, and many, many more. When you can find this, uh, more information, a register on rumicenter.love slash wisdom. That's rumicenter.love slash wisdom. And I want to thank you, Professor Rustam, because, you know, you are making this great living tradition accessible to those of us who are in the modern world, whose first language is English, and who may not have access to all of these ancient manuscripts in the original source languages. So, uh, you know, people like yourself, people like, uh, you know, Dr. Chittick, who I know you you compiled his, his writings and his essential writings, beautiful collection, and, and so many others, and increasingly more and more scholars who are really devoting themselves to opening for us this worldview of our tradition. And uh, anyone really who is interested in this, um, interested in deeply understanding what was Rumi really getting at? What was Ibn Arabi really getting at? This is a great opportunity to, to really dive deep, inshallah. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you have any other closing words or... No, it's just a pleasure, you know, doing this with you and just being a part of this. Uh, the Rumi Center is obviously doing its, its fair share of, you know, carrying that, that significant burden. It's that, 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 you know, it's, it's a burden. It's a big burden to be able to, to first of all, uh, you know, to convey these teachings properly in a sound way, in a way that makes sense to people and is admirable what you're doing, Habibi. And, and I, I think that we should all, you know, uh, take, take Ruby Center very seriously. I hope to come out there one day. Once this thing's all over, gotta come, gotta come visit and Inshallah, you. this is just the first collaboration. I know you're working on, you've been working on Ainu Kuzat Hamadani, so maybe we have a whole course on that. Oh, that'd be great. Mullah Sadra, Ibn Arabi. Inshallah, this is the first of many. Inshallah. Okay. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.